An exciting adventure into nature's mysterious wilderness comes with many risks. Forgoing the safety of civilization and venturing out into the wild means that you will have to depend on yourself for food, shelter, and safety. You will make mistakes, and some may be forgiving, but if you're not careful, some may prove to be deadly. Even though you may equip yourself with the proper tools, that is often not enough. Even the most experienced outdoorsmen cannot be properly prepared for the unknown. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. This week we are discussing the Dyatlov Pass incident, a Russian mystery that is truly what nightmares are made of. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Igor Dyatlov grew up in the industrial town of Pervorolask, a city in Severodlovsk Oblast, Russia, where he was born in 1936. He had an older brother and two younger sisters. Igor's dad worked in a chemical plant as an engineer, and his mother was a cashier at a local club. Growing up, he was a hardworking and inquisitive boy who loved school. He started participating in hiking groups at his school at an early age. In the seventh grade, Igor made a makeshift portable radio and took it along on a hiking trip with hikers from his school. In 1951, someone so young building a radio left an impression on his classmates. Igor, during his teen years, continued to create radio receivers and sound recorders. He participated in the radioification program in his school and later continued to demonstrate his inventions at university. His most unusual invention was a walkie-talkie, which connected the student with relatives up to 26 miles away. The first camping trip that Igor went on with his older brother in seventh grade made such an impression on him that tourism became his second great passion after radio technology. After finishing his second year at university, he became a member of the regional tourist team and took part in trips with the highest degree of difficulty. His classmates noted his ability to solve problems in difficult situations and his willingness to help at any time. However, as time went by, being the leader of the group caused Igor to become a tough commander, and not everyone liked it. His peers brought this to his attention, and Igor sincerely listened to the criticism and tried to change. In 1957, Igor was appointed to lead the tourist group of the Institute. The team included guys and girls with excellent physical training and personal qualities. In extreme situations, any small mistake could cost a life. 
Igor prepared his team for a difficult winter campaign, which they planned to devote to the 21st Party Congress in 1959. The team had to overcome 186 miles along the northern edge of the Severodlovsk region. The team had to overcome 186 miles along the northern edge of the Severodlovsk region and then climb the peaks of the Otorten Mountain and the Oika Chakur Mountain. The treacherous campaign received the third highest category of difficulty. There were 10 members on the team when their journey began, eight men and two women. The group left for Serov on January 23rd, then crossed by train to Ivdel. From there, the route began in the village of Vizay, where the beginning of their path started in the second northern mine. Before heading off from the village, one of the team members, Yuri Yudin, began experiencing severe back and leg pain. With the sympathy of the others, Yuri left the group and returned home. Yuri had no idea that he was avoiding a nightmarish incident that would cost his friends all of their young lives. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. For more than 60 years, the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass incident, in which nine hikers in Russia met a mysteriously gruesome end in February 1959, has gone unsolved. Investigators said in July 2020 that the hikers died of hypothermia after an avalanche or similar force pushed them out of their tent and into the cold. Still, the mystery remains unofficially unsolved. How did the nine trekkers die on the snowy slopes of Russia's Kolatsakil, a name that translates to Dead Mountain? Let's go back to January 27, 1959, when a 23-year-old hiker named Igor Dyatlov led a journey to reach the peak of the Otorten, a mountain in the northern Urals of Soviet Russia. The young man brought a team of eight experienced hikers, many from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, who were his fellow students and peers at the Institute, along with him for the adventure. Before he left, Dyatlov told his sports club that he and his team would send them a telegram as soon as they returned. But that telegram was never sent, and none of the hikers of the so-called Dyatlov Pass incident were ever seen alive again. 
On February 20th, their bodies were discovered by a rescue party. According to Prosecutor Tempelov, documents that were found in the tent of the expedition suggest that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was possibly dispatched by the local Komsomol, a political youth organization. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 190 miles. The route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the far northern regions of the Severodlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the Severodlovsk City Route Commission. This was a division of the Severodlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport, and they confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8, 1959. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorton, a mountain 6.2 miles north of the site where the incident occurred. This route undertaken in February was estimated as a Category 3, the most difficult time to traverse. On January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued the route book, which listed their course as following the number 5 trail. At that time, the Severodlovsk City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. The 11th person listed was Simeon Zolteryov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of similar difficulty, the Sorgren Expedition Group. The Dyatlov Group left the Severodlovsk City, today Yekaterinburg, on the same day they received the route book. The group arrived by train at Ivdel, a town at the center of the northern province of Severodlovsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25, 1959. They then took a truck to Vizai, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement in the north. While spending the night in Vizai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. On January 27th, they began their trek towards Gora Otorten. On January 28th, one member, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining nine hikers continued the trek. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they stored surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west, toward the top of Kolat Sakil. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than move one mile downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. 
Yudin, the only surviving member, later speculated, Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. Before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizai. It was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of February, but Dyatlov had told Yudin, before he departed from the group, that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and police forces became involved, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent at Kolot Sakil. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sheravin, the student who found the tent, said, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belonging and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by the group wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be seen leading down the edge of the nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, one mile to the northeast. After 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to 15 feet high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. Among the three was Dyatlov. They were found at distances of 980, 1,570, and 2,070 feet from the tree. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under 13 feet of snow in a ravine, 246 feet further into the woods from the pine tree. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed for use by the others. Dabanina was wearing Krivonashenko's burned torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Because the bodies of the hikers were discovered in extremely bizarre conditions, it quickly became apparent that this was not an avalanche death, nor a typical run-of-the-mill hypothermia situation. Instead, the hikers were found in two clusters showing serious trauma and mutilation. One group of hikers was found in the snow near a tent. The tent had been cut from the inside, as if the tenants were trying to escape something. The mountaineers were found barefoot wearing minimal clothing. While this does point to hypothermia, one of the hikers was a brown-purple hue and had foam coming from his mouth. 
other members of the party had severe trauma, as if they were bludgeoned by something more powerful than a human. The other cluster of hikers was even more frightening to see. Three men and a woman were found in this location. The woman was missing her eyes, tongue, and part of her face. The woman also tested positive for exposure to radiation. Two of the men had major bone fractures that reportedly required car crash level force. The second group was believed to have died after the first group, as they were found wearing some clothes belonging to the first cluster. At the time of the incident, the Soviet government quickly swept the story under the rug, alleging that these were just inexperienced hikers. They were quite accomplished and experienced mountaineers. The mystery has never been solved, even though the case was closed early in 2021 and blame was placed on an avalanche. The most common explanation is the idea that this was a case of hypothermia. Irrational thinking and erratic behavior are calling cards of hypothermia. Before you succumb to hypothermia, many people think they are overheating and start shedding clothing. This, of course, doesn't explain the radiation or the immense impacts that broke bones on some of the hikers. A group of hikers camping approximately 30 miles away saw strange orange orbs out in the distance where the Dyatlov party was camping. These strange colors paired with the traces of radiation suggest that the group could have stumbled on some sort of Soviet weapon testing site or secret base. Another possible explanation is UFOs which could also explain the orange orbs witnessed by the other hikers. The radiation paired with the inhuman forces that caused some of the injuries make extraterrestrials a somewhat plausible explanation. A mink, the Russian version of the Yeti, is another suspect who might be big and powerful enough to cause such injuries. Benjamin Radford, an American writer, investigator, and skeptic, suggested on a 2014 episode of the Discovery Channel that the mink was capable of such carnage. The mink is part of the Siberian oral tradition. These beliefs were retained by the Kanti and Mansai people, even though they became or were compelled to become Russian Orthodox Christians in the 17th and 18th centuries. In the Kanti epics, the mink is presented as a formidable forest spirit. There has been some speculation that some members of the party were romantically involved. There is a theory that things turned nasty and that there was conflict among the hikers. This explanation is a little thin, as the group had a history of getting along, and the trauma sustained by some members is unlikely to be administered by a jealous lover. In 2020, the revised version of the avalanche theory was endorsed by Russia. Following a new inquest, the government concluded that a rare, small slab avalanche had been the catalyst of the Dyatlov Pass tragedy. Slab avalanches occur when a layer of snow close to the surface comes loose from the layer beneath it and rolls down an incline in large chunks. This would have left behind less evidence than a more dramatic event, and the fast-moving snow blocks would have been capable of injuring some campers without smothering them. There is a lot of contradictory evidence to the avalanche theory. 
The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Over 100 expeditions to the region have been held since the incident and none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and cornices, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. An analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dyatlov was an experienced skier, and the much older Zolotaryov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in a panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. Whatever the truth is, it is frightening. This underreported and lesser known incident is the kind of thing that nightmares are made of. Igor Dyatlov's team kept a group diary along their journey. On January 28th, Lyuda Dubinia, the youngest in the group, made a lengthy description of the day into the diary. She states that the weather so far that day was smiling on them and that it was only 46 degrees outside, well above freezing. Liuta describes the group's activities that morning after breakfast. She said some of the guys went looking for local minerals, but only found pyrite and quartz veins in the rock. She says it took them a long time to wax their skis and adjust the mounting. It was a sad day for the group because Yuri Yuta was returning back home because of pain in his back and leg. At 11.45, they started their hike and headed up the river Lozva. They took turns heading the group for about 10 minutes at a time, while one team member stayed in the back making markers of the route. Liuta describes the banks of the river as limestone cliffs that rise high in places, but overall the terrain became flatter and was entirely covered by the forest. The group stopped to rest at 5.30 p.m. on the bank of the river, and began to prepare to spend the night in tents. The guys prepared the stove and sewed curtains out of sheets. With some tasks completed and others not, they finally sat down for dinner. The group seemed to have a pleasant first evening out in the cold wilderness, 
Liuta depicts a serene setting as the group sits around the fire and had discussions on life and love and sang songs. At some point, someone came up with the idea that they needed a special notebook for ideas that they may come up with along the way. Conspiring still, they ended their evening by entering the tent two at a time. The tent had a suspended stove that radiated heat and divided the tent into two sections. After finally settling down for the night, some of the guys continued to argue about something, but in the end, it was all quiet. On the second day of their hike, January 29th, they made their way from the Lozva River to the Ospaya River. They walked along a Mansai Trail, a trail made by the indigenous people of the area. The weather was a chilling eight degrees Fahrenheit. The winds were weak and there was ice on the river. On January 30th, their third day, the night was cold, but they seemed to be getting used to it and claimed that the stove did a great job of keeping them warm. The team was up at 8.30 a.m. and made their way along the Aspaya River shortly after breakfast. The ice on the river prevented the team from moving forward, so they traveled on the bank on a sledge deer trail. In the middle of the trail, they saw a Mansai shed. The word Mansai kept coming up in their conversations. Mansai are the people of the north, a small Mansai nation located in Selhard, with a population of 8,000 at the time. The group thought the Mansai to be very interesting and unique people and talked about them often. As the day progressed, the deer trail came to an end and the group had to walk without a trail which was much harder for them. They couldn't walk on the river because the water was not completely frozen. Later that day, the temperature dropped and it began to snow. It was their coldest night of the trip yet with the temperature plummeting to negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit. January 31st, day four. The weather was worse and snow was falling, but probably from the pines because the sky was perfectly clear. The forest gradually thinned as the trees got much smaller. The group got started around 10 a.m. and got back on the Mansai Trail following the steps of a hunter with a deer. Walking was especially hard that day because they couldn't see the trail and had to grope their way through at times. The group couldn't move any faster than one mile per hour. They were trying a new way to clear the trail. The first in line would drop his backpack and ski forward for five minutes, then come back and take a 10 to 15 minute break and then catch up with the group. This was hard on the hiker that had to hike the trail with full gear on his back. An entry by Igor Dyatlov himself was the last to be made in the diary. He states that they gradually left the Aspaya Valley. It was upwards all the way but went rather smoothly. Thin birch grove replaces firs. The end of the forest was getting closer. The wind was western, warm, and piercing, with speed like the draft from airplanes at takeoff, firm, open spaces. This is Dyatlov's last statement before the diary ends. I can't even think of setting up storage here. It's nearly four. Have to start looking for a place to pitch the tent. We go south in the Aspaya Valley. Seems this place has the deepest snow. 
Wind not strong, snow 1.22 meters deep. We're exhausted, but start setting up for the night. Firewood is scarce, mostly damp furs. We build the campfire on the logs, too tired to dig a fire pit. Dinner's in the tent, nice and warm. Can't imagine such comfort on the ridge with howling wind outside, hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. On February 1st, the group left on the last day of their trip. They started out late and walked for only two and a half miles. They set a tent around 5 p.m. on a slope at Kolot Sakil, just 10 miles from the Mount O'Torton. They eat their last dinner between 6 and 7 p.m. Later investigations showed that one or two of the members left the tent to relieve themselves just before something that must have been horrifying happened. An article from the British Broadcasting Channel tells the story that was relayed by Tatiana Dyatlov, Igor's younger sister, of the day they learned of her brother's fate. Tatiana's mother was busy in the kitchen raising dough to make pies when the phone rang. So the 12-year-old schoolgirl picked up the receiver. An unfamiliar male voice asked if there were any adults at home. I handed the phone to my elder brother, Tatiana says, and he was informed that Igor was dead. The next day, my parents were summoned to the university, and the nightmare began. Today, Tatiana Permanova is a grandmother in her 70s, but she remembers that evening in 1959 as if it was yesterday. Tatiana's mother had tried to stop her other brother, Igor, from going on a cross-country skiing trip with his friends, arguing that he was about to graduate and should get on with his thesis. But he pleaded with her, says Tatiana, just one last time, Mama, just one last time. And indeed, it was his last time. Tatiana says that to her dying day, her mother never forgave herself for allowing her 23-year-old son to go on the expedition. She couldn't ever come to terms with his loss, especially since it was such a terrible and incomprehensible death. At the height of the Cold War and the dead of winter, the group of 10 students led by Igor Dyatlov set out on a trip into the Ural Mountains, the range which divides Europe and Asia. The skiers were all experienced young sportsmen and women from the Urals Polytechnic Institute in Yekaterinburg and Severlovsk, as the city was called in the Soviet times, but only one of them would survive. Nine bodies were eventually found on a remote mountain with horrific, inexplicable injuries. Some were semi-clothed, two had missing eyes, and one's tongue was missing. The Dyatlov Pass mystery, as it's become known, has spawned countless conspiracy theories over the past six decades. However, in February 2019, the Russian authorities made a surprise announcement that they were reopening the case to get to the bottom of it once and for all. The student's trip was supposed to take three weeks. Igor, who was leading the trip, had promised to send a message to the sports club in Severlovsk as soon as his group was safely back at their base around 12th of February. 
At first, nobody was surprised that they didn't return on time. They had been delayed before because of bad weather. But by February 20th, their families became worried and raised the alarm. There are so many scary possibilities about what could have happened to these nine hikers on that tragic day. Headed off on the biggest adventure of their young lives, they had no idea that it would be their last. Whatever brutally killed a group of strong, healthy, skilled young people may still be out there lurking and waiting for its next victims. Whether it was aliens, a snow beast, or a secret military operation, no one is ever really safe in the great open wilderness. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other shows featuring terrifying tales, such as the Unexplained Encounters podcast, which has over 300 episodes showcasing, allegedly, true scary stories from around the world. If you love the supernatural and mysterious creatures interest you, the Unexplained Encounters podcast is the show for you. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Tune in next week as Freaky Folklore explores the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, known as the Yeti.